Ever wondered how your portfolio would hold up to the scrutiny of professional money managers? Well, one brave listener asked whether we would give his self-managed portfolio a careful on-air critique. So today, we give our unvarnished assessment of that portfolio and how the big life transitions facing this listener in the next few years influence our thinking. Stay tuned as we discuss all this and more right now on the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm your co-host, Roshan Lungani, here with Eric Olson and Adrian Nicholson. Eric, welcome to another great episode. Hey, glad to be here. Adrian, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing awesome. Glad to be here as well. It's always great when all three of us are together here on the podcast. I'm really mm. looking forward to today's episode. Yeah, we, we have a great episode for you today. We are nothing if not for the people. We've got a request from a, uh, a recent uh, listener and client of uh, Eric's to review his overall portfolio. So we're going to go over that today. Adrian, why don't you fill, us, fill everyone in on the background? Yes, of course. So this person is an Illinois resident who's turning 65 in January. They have two adult children and are divorced. And this person's looking to retire in April 2023. This person currently has low expenses. They're pretty frugal. And they want to relocate when they retire and immediately do some upgrades to the place that they move in. Also added on top of that, they're also looking to buy a new car as well. So this is all things that we're really going to have to consider with the background of this person. And also one major thing too, to make note of, this person is also looking to do Roth conversions up to the 12% level through 2025 and then up to the 10% level in 2029. They're going to do the opposite of conventional wisdom. This means that they're going to be drawing from their Roth first then their IRA, then their taxable accounts. So these are all the backgrounds on this person that we're going to be discussing today. And we're going to be looking at a portfolio and analyzing our thoughts and what maybe they could be doing better or some changes they can be doing to this portfolio. So guys, where do you want to start first with this? So I'll just jump in with a few questions I have. Having just looked at the portfolio and not the overall financial plan, and we don't need to necessarily get to the answers uh, uh, today, Eric, if you may or may not have them, or it may just take us off course a little bit. But the first thing is uh, looking at the portfolio is I want to have a risk tolerance conversation. The portfolio is super aggressive, tech heavy. Uh, is is this the portfolio you built to get to retirement or is this the portfolio you want to continue to have? Um, my next question, uh, and we his, his, we called him uh, Mr. Davis. So my next question for Mr. Davis then is uh, uh, the short-term goals of a uh, new car, uh, getting all these home upgrades done. Is the cash sufficient for that goal? Uh, and with the home upgrades, it was a sale, buying, you know, moving, and then buying another property and doing the upgrades. So if, if the cash is or isn't sufficient, is the home equity sufficient? What I'm 
getting towards with these questions are, do, is this portfolio needed for these shorter term goals, uh, which changes the, the time frame and the investment plan? Uh, the next one with them turning 65 and then retiring, uh, where's the income going to come from? from now until full retirement age when Social Security kicks in or age 70, assuming that the client is Social Security uh, eligible. But once again, I want to get to the need of this portfolio to provide income and at what point, because that will impact the time horizon and the risk tolerance, which will then impact the holdings in the portfolio. So that those are the financial planning questions I have. Now let's uh, jump in to the portfolio itself. Gentlemen, did you have anything on the planning side or any thoughts on the questions that I had? Yeah, I mean, I'll answer a few of those. So there's there's a considerable amount of true cash in the portfolio. Some of the, it, the, the portfolio at, a, at an aggregate level has about, it, let's just speak in round numbers here. Let's call it a $2 million portfolio, 15% of which is cash. So there's $300,000 of cash. And although some of that is embedded in the um, funds in in the plan, but there's still a substantial amount of cash sufficient to to finance those home improvements and also to round out the purchase of a home when the proceeds from the sale of the existing home are realized, as well as to undertake some of those upgrades. So that's not a that's not a big concern. That that stuff it shouldn't require you know, selling in a down market or something to achieve all of that. But as to your previous question, uh, one of the other questions was about social security. So yes, there were the plan here would be to wait on social security for another five years. And um, with that, then fund in the interim, the lifestyle as much as possible um, out of existing holdings so that there's plentiful opportunity to do ongoing Roth conversions until the social security kicks in and even more so until the um the rmd start kicking in at age 72 so adrian referenced doing con conversions through 2029 so we're looking at this year the current year inclusive we'd be looking at right up until the time that the rmds start to hit got it so that does um lead to additional questions slash discussion because we do need five years worth of income from this portfolio now, right? Mm -hmm. If he's delaying social security. Mm -hmm. And for those of you listening, when I say um, an aggressive portfolio, and I'm just going to the overall portfolio right now, not, not necessarily by, by each account. And even with those uh, upgrades, by the way, Eric, to the, to the house, I, I'm sure we've both seen this before. I've seen clients do renovations that cost, so little they can do it out of cash flow, and then literally clients do renovations that that you know are in the hundreds of thousands to the mm -hmm. million neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to make sure there's enough cash for there. But the mm -hmm. overall portfolio is uh, eighty three percent in stocks and fourteen um, fourteen percent in cash, two percent in bonds. I'm rounding; my rounding might be off mm -hmm. a little bit, but mm -hmm. you get the general the general point of those stocks. We've got almost half of them in tech. Mm -hmm. So this is not a portfolio uh, to generate, built to create income in retirement. So to me, if there are income needs over the next five years, you've got to take a, at least a portion of the portfolio to address that. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. And we, 
That's a really good. We point. can go through. Thank you, and we can go through by account as well. You know, which account will the money come from, and, and so on, and how to adjust. But uh, Eric, you had said something to earlier that was very key: being forced to sell in a down market. You never want to be a forced seller, mm-hmm. right? So we've got. I think we've got to address that part uh, up front. So, uh, and we'll we'll go a little bit deeper into the portfolio in a moment. But when I say address it up front, to me that means. Where will the income come from? You know, which accounts will the incomes co- income come from over the next five years? And then how will you generate that income stream? Are you relying on dividends? Are you relying on bond yields? Because um, I just want to avoid any risk of being a forced seller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And since we're on the top of, of risk, one thing that really stood out to me when we ran the analysis and looked at the historical performance of the portfolio, which is something that always good to make note of is what was one of the biggest drops that the portfolio experienced. And this was in a three-month time period between January 2020 to March 2020. I'm just going to round up. The portfolio had around a 20% decline on $2 million, which is around $400,000. So that's also something that you should just be aware of and make note of. Yes, we're looking at historical data as well, but is that something that if you experience again, would you be comfortable with, especially if you're withdrawing from the portfolio that big of decline? Obviously, we can't predict what's going to happen in the future, but that's just sort of a stress test that you can run on the portfolio as well, just to see if that's something that you can accept. Because as you're more aggressive, if you're in, if you don't have a lot of diversification, especially outside of technology, this is something that can really make a major impact. Yeah. And uh, Adrian, that was my first question on risk. I think you bring up a very good point here. Um, when we discuss risk, we always want to discuss the downside. And and I definitely want to look at and have a discussion on, uh, as I went back earlier to where the income comes from. Mm. But And uh, the other thing with risk is it does change, right? So that's where my question for Mr. Davis uh, is, is the risk of this portfolio reflective of who you were to build your wealth? Or is this a reflection of who you are as a person in general? And will you still be this aggressive going forward? Mm-hmm. So do you do you want to stay at this level uh, of an aggressive portfolio? So yeah, I, I like um I like your point on that on that drawdown because if you're if you're facing a 20% drawdown in just a three-month time period, well, you still need income. Just starting starting next month, and and that's where we've got to get into the amounts of income and how to uh, how to uh, how to address it. But I'll, I'll continue on to the overall portfolio and and just some of the thoughts here. My first thought with the overall um, overall portfolio is that there are a lot of holdings. There are ninety eight holdings in the portfolio, right? So to me, I look at that and I think. Um, is this a closet index portfolio, which means you've just got a lot of stuff and essentially you own the index because you own so much stuff. It's not based on performance, right? Uh, so so I, I, can, I can say it's not that. However, what you've got going on in the portfolio is you've got these few individual tech stocks that, that are held that are masking a lot of these closet indexing slash underperforming holdings. Mm-hmm. So to me, the the very first thing to address is is um, you got a two million dollar portfolio. You've got three thousand in this ETF, which means you've got like a hundred fifty three hundred dollars 
in these in the holdings within within an ETF, right? And that's just one of the one of the lower percentage holdings. So that what's the point? It, it's not going to move the needle on the portfolio. It's just going to cause you more work with something else to track. So those are the kind of uh, when I say there are a lot of holdings, those are the questions I'd want to address when I say there are a lot of holdings. The questions being. How do they fit in the portfolio, and is there uh, is there really place for this holding in the portfolio? Do you want to track and manage this this portfolio that's just, this part of the portfolio that's just so so small? So I'd really address a lot of uh, a lot of the holdings that I I see as uh, as being more costly from a time perspective to manage than they will have a benefit to the portfolio. And it's so concentrated in large growth. There's really not much diversification outside where if you look at a multi-cap uh, approach, there's not a lot of mid-cap stocks or a small cap. There's not too much value stocks in this portfolio as well, which is a greater opportunity to diversify as well. And when we ran the analysis too, there was little to no bond exposure as well, or fixed income, which is another opportunity to just diversify more. Yeah. And you know, if you look at this, uh, the pro- portfolio from the perspective of, of the, the past, that makes sense because yields weren't great in bonds. So I get it. And while working and growing the portfolio, so I, I definitely understand that. But going back to what I said earlier, does it, is, that, is that who you were? Uh, and or, and will you no longer be that person in January when you retire, or is that who you'll always always be? Right, like I've got I've got clients that that um, don't touch any of their of their assets. They've got minimum distributions that just go to charity, and then the investment portfolio is based on risk tolerance and comfort level, and so on. I've got other clients that need certain amounts of return to accomplish their retirement goal. Right, so it's just figuring out who he is uh, as an individual, right? As as an investor. So let me just comment on a couple of those things. It's I think it's worth noting that three positions represent a very large share of the overall portfolio. When we say overall portfolio, we're talking about all the the, the sub components being IRAs, uh, inherited IRAs, Roth IRAs, four hundred one ks, and the Roth components of four hundred one ks and, and, and taxable accounts, and on and on. So the three positions are Apple at 16% of the overall of the overall portfolio. So in just trans speaking about that in real dollar numbers, that's over $300,000 of Apple. Then you have Broadcom at 6%. So that's a, again on the $2 million portfolio Broadcom that that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 120,000. And then you have Microsoft, which is in excess of 4%. So there you're talking about, in this case, almost $90,000. If you were to take those positions out, just set those aside and treat those as a separate, you know, I'm not saying, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but just as, mm, you know, um, hobby stocks, maybe, um, as opposed to allocation-oriented positions, then what you'd see is the small caps are collectively about uh, whether expressed directly or in the index uh, funds, meaning in this case, ETFs in this case, um, they're 10% of the portfolio, which is a very close match with what the actual breakdown of the U S stock market is about 10% of the market capitalization is in, 
is in uh, small caps. And most of that is concentrated in the small cap blend category. If you look at the mid caps as a whole right now in this portfolio, it's 16%. But if you take out that 25% or so of those positions that are represented by, the, again, those three stocks, then what you'd say is, is okay, well, now the mid caps are really more like about 20% of the overall portfolio and concentrated in mid cap blend, which is actually fairly representative of the overall uh, breakdown of the the U.S. Uh, stock markets, market capitalization and so forth. So on that basis, I would say you, you, if you step back, extract those three and then ask the question, is this well diversified? I would say it's probably a little tech heavy still. It is still a little tech heavy, um, but it isn't, it isn't quite as egregious when you, when you think about those three. And so then I would think in terms of just the, how do you deal with those three stocks? I think one way is to say, maybe you use some hedges on those stocks. I, I'm not sure just because they do, but their, their movement in the portfolio as a whole really does dictate um, the direction of the portfolio as a whole, um, largely because of their, their, the significance of their weight. Can you expand that well, more, Eric, when you say hedges can, for some of our listeners that maybe want you to, to elaborate on that more? Yeah, I mean, I would think it, depending on your outlook, you might want to use some options contracts on those three positions. Again, those are Apple and Broadcom and Microsoft. Or you might just say, no, I don't need to I don't need to use hedges on those because I'm persuaded enough that they in the long run are are going to be extremely successful companies. And I'm just willing to wait through the volatility. I don't think there's a fundamental risk to their business models at this stage. Or you know, I'm not saying I'm not taking a position on that. By the way, I'm just saying, depending on what an investor's outlook was on that, it could uh, shape whether or not they think it makes sense to use some sort of hedges of some kind. Yeah, yeah, and I I did have that on my list. I want to come back to that in a second, just to uh, go to what you said. When you pull those holdings out, mm -hmm. you had said you've got pretty much the U.S. stock market as a whole. Much I just closer. wanted to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to bring bring that up because that's what I was saying earlier about are you a closet index, right? If mm -hmm. you if you side pocket those stocks, do you just have a bunch of holdings that gives you what the what the index does? Now, is in certain accounts, it was really evident uh, the uh, rollover IRA, the uh, beneficiary beneficiary IRA. Um, you you've got those. Portfolios. If you look at the overall performance, it looks like it's outperforming. Well, what you happen, what's happening is you've got some of these stocks masking the underperformance of a lot of other holdings in there. Mm -hmm. So when I look at look at the portfolio, if you go the route, Eric, you said of side pocketing these and take taking it out, I'd have to look at the data just because I looked at the PDF. I didn't get to manipulate and adjust it. But is the portfolio then an underperformer? And I I, I think it would be from what I saw with the individual accounts. Well, uh, so first of all, I just want to clarify. I think that the that the client has and uh, takes the position that they're not going to be an indefinite buy and holder. So mm -hmm. they will look to see based on what their their outlook is about certain sectors or about certain asset classes. They will rotate. This client will rotate in. And by the way, I, I noticed that you called him Mr. Davis. You didn't use the fantastic pseudonym that I developed for his first name, Bertrand. I mean, don't you love Bertrand? Isn't that a great first name? I, I love had to Google search it because I never heard it before. before oh, is that right? 
Oh man, I I thought I, I thought I should give myself a little gold star for just coming up with that. But anyway, Bertrand Davis, uh, in this case, as uh, it, it may be that the positions that you're seeing in that portfolio um, appear to have, you know they create the the tools that we use to assess the portfolio don't tell us how long a position has been held, and so we're making statements about these yeah. positions as if they'd been held for a long, long time. But I would say to and again, if he had held some of these positions for a while, I mean offsetting this and by the way i'm not trying to i'm not trying to kiss up to this client because this is just i think the client wants an honest assessment of the outlook but i would say that if you look at some of the other top 15 holdings you see some things like agribusiness so archer daniels midland is in the portfolio you see a commitment to high dividend an etf that's paying high is focused on high dividend stocks um you see a focus on some consumer staples, which is really sort of the anti-technology play. And um, so on that basis, I would say you, you, you said, Roshan, maybe he should just simplify everything. And as, aside from those three stocks, just do an all cap, uh, you know, an all cap uh, index fund and he'll cover the same ground. I don't know about that, but, uh, you know, may, maybe so. And- Eric, and I'm not suggesting that he should do that. Uh-huh. I'm suggesting that he accidentally got there, not but oh. not on purpose. Okay, right? okay. So, so, the, so then my question is, do you want to be there uh-huh. or are you there by accident, uh-huh. right? Is it intentional or not? Or, or not? Mm-hmm. And, if, and if, you, if you got there, uh, if you want to be there, then maybe indexing for that part mm-hmm. of the portfolio makes sense. But if you got there by accident, then, then I'd say you've got to address your, your – um, methodology or how you made the, the selection. An, another great point you made was we just see what what they have, not when they bought. There are definitely some holdings in there that are a s- significant underperformers based on the data that we have mm-hmm. that I wouldn't sell because they, it looks like it has a good future outlook. If these were recent additions to the portfolio, I'd be applauding him instead of saying, you know, why do you own this dog? So, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so, yeah. For getting in on it while it's down, beaten down and awaiting the recovery. Uh, yes. I looked at the valuations of the portfolio as a whole. And this is, I, again, at the portfolio, aggregate portfolio level, the um, tool that we use to assess it has the capacity to develop a synthetic benchmark, a synthetic benchmark that is. Uh, simplifies things. So if it sees 85% of the portfolio in US stocks, it just says, okay, we'll just use as a proxy for that 85% in our benchmark, we'll just use the S&P 500. If we see, you know, X number of uh, whatever it was in cash, then we'll use cash, of course. And if we see bonds, we'll use the Bloomberg aggregate bond index. So on that basis, the portfolio can be largely compared to the S&P 500, because as you pointed out, Roshan, it's 85%-ish U.S. stock. So on that level, when you look at the portfolio as a whole, on on the valuation measures, it's actually, it's close to, but slightly under the valuations of the broad market. I think that's impressive in that Apple and Microsoft and Broadcom are by no means uh, priced on a valuations measure in ways that are sim- similar to the broad index. So again, if you pull those out, then you'd say, well, hmm, impressively, the rest of the portfolio actually looks like it does have very attract- uh, more attractive valuations than the broad index does. Another measure, though, 
I think cuts the opposite way. And that is it doesn't distinguish itself in, in very many ways on the profitability and quality measures, although it does on the return on equity. And that's commonly the case with high growth uh, tech stocks that they have exceptional return on equity. But if you pull those out, then the rest of the portfolio doesn't look like it is as well positioned from an overall um, um, profitability measure or you know return on on an investment or other sorts of measures that we would use. So I, I think it's a mixed bag. Of probably aside from the three hobby stocks, I'll just call them um, attractive valuations, but also not necessarily spectacularly attractive um, quality. And as you said, that could be where it is now. Mm-hmm. But maybe there, maybe uh, Bertrand sees an opportunity there. In, in some of these holdings or some of these sectors sectors now, which is definitely different than if he held them for 10, for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And as I said, you've got underperformers. Uh, one thing you mentioned earlier that I want to go back to regarding those three stocks in particular that he has big mm-hmm. positions on mm-hmm. is the hedges. So what I was looking at on there uh, is, is there a sales price that he would feel comfortable selling? If so, and can you write covered calls to generate income or can you write covered calls to generate income that you can then use to purchase puts to give you downside protection? So you had mentioned the options. I just wanted to go back, mm-hmm. uh, go back to that a little bit and say, so the way a covered call works, if you've got you know, stock ABC and it's trading at $100, well, you can say, I'll sell it if it's trading at 110 next month. And you can then get, let's just say you get um, 50 cents per share. You get to keep that 50 cents per share. If it's trading at 109 at the end of next month, you just keep the 50 cents and you're fine. If it goes up to 115, well, your upside's capped at 110 because you've already agreed to sell it at 110. That's how the covered call works. We've discussed this before. We've got uh, an episode that's dedicated to options and option strategy that I'd, I'd say check out if you want further information on that. But to me, when I look at these kind of stock positions, if there is a sales price you'd be willing to sell, I'd say, hey, why not Why not make a little bit of money on the income of the portfolio along the way? And by the way, these contracts are done on 100 share uh, increments, so it doesn't have to be the same price. You can, you can say for this 100 shares, I want to do it at 110 on my example, and the next 100 shares is at 115 so on and so forth. So I just view that as, is there an opportunity there to either generate income, particularly when you think about retiring next year, or use that income to protect the downside of the portfolio? The key in this, particularly in a down market like this, is is I'm always hesitant to write an option at a price you're not willing to sell because you don't want it to go through. If you don't want it to go through at that price, uh, said differently, I wouldn't view this as an income opportunity only, right? I'd view this as, yes, I'm generating income, but I have to be willing to sell it at this price or I'll just be, you won't make enough, right? In that example of the, the stock trading at 100, you're selling it at 110 next month and you're getting 50 cents a share. Well, if it's at 115, to get that 50 cents a share, you missed $5 a share on the mm-hmm. upside. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say make sure that's a good price for you. Well, just in terms of the 
now I'm moving from an investment commentary to a planning commentary, which is probably my happy space most of the time, is to think about what can we do to minimize the tax consequences of these embedded capital gains, in, particularly in the Apple position. And there's two that um, this client and I have discussed. So number one is to uh, fund a donor-advised fund with some of the appreciated positions, the most highly appreciated positions. That doesn't mean that you have to have less of that stock, by the way, our dear listener. This, you, if, if you have a stock that you really, really love and you're thinking, why would I want to give it away? Um, and, you know, in, in terms of as, as a source of charitable giving funding, you can repurchase that same stock instead of putting cash into a donor advised fund or instead of making cash donations. You can just make these appreciated stock donations and then repurchase the stock. You might say, well, why would I do that? Well, because you reset your basis at the new higher level. And as a result, in the future, in the future, you won't have the same degree of embedded capital gains. So anyway, that's one intention for this client is to use the most highly appreciated positions to fund uh, to fund some give donor advice fund giving. The other um, part of this strategy, though, is, is during those five years, if you can, that is to say, before Social Security kicks in and even more so before the um, re required minimum distributions kick in at age 72, if it's possible to indeed keep the, keep the marginal income tax bracket at the federal level, um, be somewhere in the current 12% marginal income tax bracket, maybe even closer to 10 or, or even closer to zero, that means that you can sell a highly appreciated position, realize those capital gains that are, were formerly unrealized, and if, assuming they're long-term, pay 0% tax on those long-term capital gains. That's, that's fantastic. So you, you, essentially, you, you made that purchase, you got all that growth, and then you pay zero tax, at least at the federal level, on that gain. So we this uh this use of manufacturing an artificially a, a period of artificially low marginal income tax rates is not only useful for Roth conversions but it can be useful it, it, as an alternative to that to um to realize some capital gains at the 0% tax rate great move so, that's a well, really thanks. good move uh, both yeah. of them yeah both of them are really good moves. Um, let me see if I've got anything else that really stands out on the um, uh, on the list of things to cover. And I'll just I'll just review actually everything because I think I've covered the the high points. But first, I'd want to clear up a risk tolerance going forward. <clears throat> Make sure cash is sufficient, which you said it is. Have an income plan from age sixty five to seventy, so I know what parts of the portfolio I need to dedicate to that. And then next within the portfolio, I'd want to make a decision on those stocks, right? On, on the on the stocks, how do they fit in the portfolio? Are should they be quote unquote side pocketed or called hobby stocks and just managed separately? Then addressing the rest of the portfolio, uh, looking at is is that really historical underperformance or are these strategic moves in in those individual holdings that you've got in there? And if there are strategic moves, I just want to discuss it, you know, uh, just sort of flush out the idea a little bit further. If there are some underperforming holdings that, that, that have been put in the portfolio, 
I'd want to address those. How do you how do you adjust and manage manage the portfolio? Now, granted, I understand part of the reason there are so many holdings is because they're across multiple accounts. But is that like, do you really need that three thousand dollar position in in an obscure ETF versus putting it into something else? Gentlemen, do you have anything anything you'd add on the overall portfolio review? Um, maybe just uh, you know, I, I would tip tip my hat to the client because this this client has clearly devoted a lot of energy to understanding and looking at and evaluating various issues, whether they're stocks or ETFs, and not a lot of people have that much energy or or self confidence to do that. So on, on that level, at least I would say, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a cool thing to see a client who's put in the time over the years to develop that level of, of know-how and, and confidence that doesn't mean, and I'm this, I'm not saying this self-servingly, but it doesn't mean that necessarily that's something that the client wants to, you know, any client wants, wants to continue doing. I might be really, really good at doing my own taxes. It doesn't, but that doesn't mean that I uh, that I should keep doing that. I mean, there might be just more enjoyable ways to spend my time. Mm, yeah, and the last thing I'll add is I'll definitely give a thumbs up to the portfolio on a risk-adjusted basis. It's a very mm. aggressive portfolio, but as far as the numbers and the data shows, they're getting paid as far as the return on the risks that they're taking. So I always give that a thumbs up as well. If it was the opposite, that'd be very concerning if they were taking on a lot of risk, but historically they haven't been performing well, we'd be looking at adjustments there, but that's not the case here. Yeah. So Mr. Davis, Mr. Bertrand Davis, I hope you found this uh, helpful <laughs> uh, and I hope it gave you some things to, to look at and discuss. I actually think we'd have some fun conversations just with the uh, portfolio you have and the, the way you manage it. I've got a, a few people will really have these uh nerdy finance discussions. I think he'd be a welcome addition to that to that group. Uh, so we hope you found this helpful for everyone listening. We hope you found this helpful as well. Just an angle to think about your portfolio. You may be in a situation where you've got some really good winners out there that are masking some others. You may be looking at strategic, strategic moves. And also hope this will let you know that we're happy to review your portfolio like this. If you'd like, please reach out to us. Our information can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with another great episode next week. This has been the Retired Lifestyle Show. Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. 
and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through RTA Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through RTA Wealth Management, LLC, member FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw in Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.